Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. As you know, the issue of the maintenance of certification from the ABIM has continued to be a problem. There was a petition that was started by Dr. Aaron Goodman uh, from UCSD on July 21st. That petition has gathered so far over 20,000 votes or signatures asking the ABIM to end the maintenance of certification. Citing the fact that there are no data to propose that maintenance of certification can demonstrate adequately that it helps in improving patient care or that it is an actual pathway that leads to telling payers and hospitals that physicians who maintain the certification are actually going to provide better care compared to CME. As you know, all physicians to maintain their licenses in the states that they practice at, they need to have CME activity commensurate on their specialty and area of expertise. So there's a lot of issues in that particular arena pertaining to maintenance of certification. And I aired a podcast uh, uh, of a debate and a discussion between Aaron Goodman and Dr. Richard Barron, who is the CEO and president of the ABIM. And by and large, that podcast has been the most watched as well as the most listened to podcast that I have aired in 2023. In that podcast, it was very clear that the arguments that the ABIM has main, made and maintained did not were not convincing because no one that listened to this podcast reached out to me and said, wow, these conversation, this conversation actually convinced me of the value of the MOC. In fact, I've asked many folks to come on the podcast and defend the MOC as long as they have no conflict of interest with the ABIM, and I have not been able to find anyone who is willing to come on Healthcare Unfiltered and say that the, uh, the, the, the maintenance of certification actually is something that is good. Interestingly, since August 2nd, 2023, we have not seen any tweet from the ABIM. We have not seen any communication from the ABIM, at least on uh, Twitter and social media. I came across Dr. Brian Carmody's uh, suggestions about how do we actually find solutions to the maintenance of certification. Dr. Carmody calls himself the sheriff of sodium. He is a pediatric nephrologist. He's an associate professor. He really had some ideas that the maintenance of certification uh, could be, I guess, refined. He uh, tweeted that, uh, and he also made a YouTube uh, videos on that. And I reached out to him and I said, you know what, why don't you come on my show and tell everybody about your solutions or your proposed solutions of the maintenance of certification, what we can actually do. He generally accepted the invite, and this podcast captures the essence of the conversation I had with Dr. Carmody on Healthcare Unfiltered to talk about proposed solutions 
proposed solutions to the saga of the maintenance of certification. I really would like you to check out uh, Dr. Carmody's uh, website, YouTube videos. All of these are in the uh, podcast notes. But ultimately, the goal of this podcast is to understand better, are there solutions of for, for this dilemma? By the way, I'd like you to take a look also at the podcast I taped with Dr. Wes Fisher, who is an uh, electrophysiologist at the North Shore University Health System. And Dr. Fisher has done a lot of work on the maintenance of certification issue. And I taped a podcast with him that aired um, several weeks back. Uh, check that out. Since the podcast that I aired between uh, uh, Aaron Goodman, Rich Barron, and Wes Fisher, the uh, Society of Cardiovascular uh, and Geography and Intervention did actually issue a statement uh, against the MOC, and I interviewed the leaders of that society in another podcast. Also, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, ASCO, our own society, did also come up with a statement, but that statement suggested that they will do a survey to better understand the oncologist's views on the maintenance of certification. And... Uh, well, uh, I, you know, I can't really tell the future, but uh, based on the people I've talked to and based on everything I have seen so far, I doubt genuinely that uh, the feedback that ASCO will get uh, about maintenance of certification will be anything but negative. It is something that everybody I have talked to has asked to eliminate and get rid of because it does not provide any value. It just provides a lot of funds and finances to the ABIM and we do not know where the money actually goes. Okay, well, this was a long monologue for me and a long, long intro that I usually don't really do that long, but I want to make sure I give you a context as how we ended up taping this podcast, this podcast with Dr. Carmody. So before I air this podcast, I want to make sure that you know you can find it everywhere. Everywhere you listen to podcasts, but also you can watch all of these episodes on YouTube. And you could actually rate, I hope you can rate it and uh, write a brief review and tell your friends and colleagues about this podcast. I would be eternally grateful if you could do so. Uh, check out uh, um, Instagram and Twitter, chadi underscore healthcare unfiltered or my Twitter handle at chadi nabhan. And you for, and you, if you are in the mood to read a book, you have to check out Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Without further ado, potential solutions to the ABIM maintenance of certification saga with Dr. Brian Carmody on Healthcare Unfiltered. Welcome to the show, and let's start by a quick intro as to who Brian Carmody is. <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pediatric nephrologist, actually. I don't have any skin in the game with uh, ABIM, although, in fairness, I, um, I, I deal with the American Board of Pediatrics, which, in all relevant regards, is substantially similar to the ABIM. But um, you and I met, I guess, uh, on Twitter in response to some of the, uh, the conversations that have been happening there um, related to... Um, you know, this petition that, um, you know, that Dr. Goodman started and um, continues to get support. And, um, you know, in, in response to that, I, I 
highlighted and put out a video of my own that, um, I mean, the, the petition's fine, and I encourage people to, to sign it as a way of showing support for this issue, but to not lose sight of the fact that um, a petition by itself is not going to do much. So, um, so that's how I guess you and I became acquainted and how I ended up here today. And we're going to talk about some of the solutions that you propose, uh, but um, how did you end up uh, doing uh, pediatric and nephrology? Is that something you always wanted to do? Was it uh, influenced by a mentor? By How did this end up? Well, I think it's um, beyond reasonable dispute that the kidney is the most beautiful organ in the human body. Of course. Every level. <laughs> <laughs> so naturally, <laughs> that drew me in. Yeah. Now, I, how um, could you I, argue that? <laughs> I actually had, uh, you know, if you'd seen me in medical school, I thought I was going to be an internist. Um, I, uh, you know, I liked, um, I liked everything about internal medicine and actually um, only switched to pediatrics, like at the very, like at the time that, uh, you know, residency applications were due, uh, when I sort of realized that many of the things that I liked about medicine also applied to pediatrics. So I sort of went in with the idea that I'd be a specialist and, um, um, you know, I like the role that pediatric nephrologists have. Um, you know, we, you know, for kids that have end-stage kidney disease or CKD, I mean, we're, we're all in for those kids and we see them through dialysis and transplant and it's, um, um, you know, you get to have that sustained relationship with patients, but yet you also, you know, you get to be a consultant, you get to come and help on other patients that, um, often have interesting or challenging problems and that's gratifying. Um, and so, yeah, it felt like a good fit for me. You know, actually, I have to admit, I didn't, so I obviously know there are pediatric oncologists, pediatric hematologists, but I didn't know that every subspecialty, um, the, also in pediatrics, in other words, I wasn't necessarily aware that the nephrologists, adult nephrologists, do not deal with kids' kidney disease at all. Um, that's obviously, you know, shortcoming of my part, but uh is there that much difference in terms of managing, um, like an nephro adult nephrologist is unable to manage a pediatric nephrology? Well, you know, in one sense, there's not much difference. I mean, in-stage kidney disease is in-stage kidney disease, but in a sense, it is different. I mean, if you look at the the reasons that patients end up with in-stage kidney disease, you know, among adult patients, it's, you know, it's very heavily diabetes, hypertension, you know, a little bit of polycystic kidney disease, and then a smattering of little things. If you look at, if you make a pie chart, and actually when I teach our medical students, I have a, I have a graphic that shows this very thing that I'll try to describe verbally. But um, if you look at a pie chart of the causes of end-stage kidney disease in pediatric patients, it's all over the place. Um, you know, many things are, are sort of rare diseases that, um, you know, you may only have a couple of patients with over your whole career, and yet they're important diseases to manage, and you sort of become the expert in those things. And, um, and I think that that makes it challenging and fun, um, you know, when, when you're on call, I mean, you know, you could, you could be challenged with, I mean, I suppose that's true for many physicians, but you could be challenged with something that, um, you know, that you've never seen before that you have to become the expert in. And I think, um, that's one of the most challenging, but gratifying things about, you know, about a, a job like this. So going back to the core of the conversation, before you saw all of this like petition and everything going on, and I appreciate you listening to the podcast that I aired with Rich Barron, Aaron Goodman, and Wes Fisher. Were you, was this a topic of interest to you or did your interest peak when you saw these conversations or is this something you have been interested in for years and, and tell me a little bit about 
American boards of pediatrics, how does it differ than the American boards of internal medicine? Yeah, um, you know, MOC and the board organizations themselves are not something that I I would say that is a is a special focus of my interest, but it's sort of adjacent to a lot of things that I do care about, and so. To, to the extent that I'm known as anything other than a pediatric nephrologist, uh, you know, I'm known as the sheriff of sodium um, and I have a blog and a, um, uh, you know, a YouTube channel and, and comment upon things usually in sort of the medical education, medical training space. And so a lot of that stuff, I mean, the things that I care about most sort of get adjacent to or, or have some of the same issues that come up with MOC. So it's something that I've, I've never, um, you know, I believe as a matter of principle, I try not to pop off about stuff that I, I don't feel like I have something meaningful to add to the conversation. And so I haven't talked much about MOC, but I've, I, it is something that I've sort of quietly been following for, for some time and going back to, you know, some years and, and Dr. West's, I guess I started, I probably heard of Dr. West, maybe 2016, 2017, thereabout, um, and, and started following some of his stuff. So um, in pediatrics, what's the difference? Like you guys also have, you have to pass the boards. Yeah, it's, it's essentially the same. It's in, in fact, it's actually a little bit more expensive than ABIM, um, really just because it's a somewhat smaller specialty. And so, um, and, you know, some of the costs are fixed, but yeah. So in pediatrics, you, uh, when you complete your general pediatrics residency, you can certify with the general pediatric certifying exam. If you want to certify in a subspecialty like pediatric nephrology or pediatric infectious disease or pediatric hematology or you know any of those then that's an additional exam and then you enter the maintenance of certification process for pediatrics which is similar to the abims um the um i completed my last moc cycle in 2022 just this past fall which means for the next five years i'm doing multiple choice questions and collecting these moc points that have to be of four different types so that in five years i can continue to um you know get that well, it's forever it's forever yeah exactly as long as and, you um, live and you want to be practicing <laughs> right yeah exactly so i i glanced at the um the the current pricing which um for MOC for pediatrics, it's $294 a year or $1,397 for five years to just maintain your general pediatrics. If you want to maintain two certificates, it's $412 a year or $1,982 for five years. And 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 you still, this is only the cost, but but after those five years, you keep paying for the next five years. Right, right. And exactly. then you still have to take the test and the exams, regardless of how much you practice, how often you're practicing and CME, all of that stuff. Right, right. So, you know, the ABIM and the ABP, um, some of the decision making, like, you know, they outsource uh, to the state licensing authorities. So you have to have a full and unrestricted medical license to, um, you know, to recertify or to certify. So, you know, anything related to your personal character or disciplinary history or things like that, the ABIM or ABP vouches for it. But they've outsourced that authority right. to the state licensing board and then, you know, build it into their certification. So the idea here is that, you know, the ABIM has instituted this process by which, number one, uh, you know, you have to pay every year. And number two is you have to continue taking exams and questions. And I want you to put on the hat of a non-doctor, somebody who's watching this, and they're going to say, really, guys, what's the big deal? I mean, you're doctors. You can take an exam every so often to make sure you're okay. And, you know, you can afford 
a thousand bucks or you know two hundred dollars, whatever it is. Like they're not going to get sympathy from right. a cost perspective. So help the non doctors who are listening, maybe sympathize or understand the value of it, or should they care? Yeah. All right. Well, I got two comments about that, I guess. Um, the first is sort of a comment to doctors about what you said, which I think I agree completely with you. This is not a topic upon which physicians can or should expect support from the general public. I mean, it, we can complain about these, you know, 200 and some dollar, you know, fees from the board, but, uh, you know, tell that to patients, you know, find out how much they paid the last time they saw you for a 15 minute office visit. You know, it's, it, and so I think many physicians, because of the injustice of all this, they feel that you know this is naturally going to resonate with the general public, and it will not. So I agree with you completely on that, and I'd make that comment to the doctors. To the public, I would say, you know, the the premise of certification. I mean, you're right, and this is one of the challenges that I think we have in arguing against it is that, as sort of a general logical argument, it makes sense. You know, I mean, um, it, it it simply does not make sense that you could take a test one time and be guaranteed to be good at that forever. You know, that that's not the case. And so the idea, you know, the face validity of something like that, I think is high. You know, you want your doctors to be good. I think the problem is that in reality, as, as you and others have, have highlighted recently, there's little, if any, good evidence that these exams or that these processes do what they say they're going to do, you know, that they actually improve the quality of care um, or if they're just sort of another source of, of wasted effort and resources. I would further say that, um, you know, at the end of the, um, yeah, I, I did listen to, um, you know, both Dr. West's episode and um, uh, the, you know, the episode with Dr. Barron and Dr. Goodman. At the end of the, uh, of your episode with Dr. Goodman and, um, uh, you know, Dr. Barron, you know, uh, Dr. Barron was, uh, I think it was in his closing remarks, he said something eloquent about how, you know, the, the public and the hospitals, they're, um, they're looking to us so they know who to trust. And, you know, when you hear him say that on first pass, it may, it may sound good. You're like, yeah, I mean, we all want doctors you can trust. But if you think about it for more than a few seconds, it sort of begs a question. Why do we want to have doctors that you can't trust? I mean, why do we want a system where we have, you know, doctors with a capital D with the ABM stamp, ABIM stamp of approval, and then, you know, charlatans who are fully licensed, but not ABM certified, you know, out there practicing. Why would we ever want a, a system like that? And if you, even if you believe that the ABM certificate is valid, why would that be a, a, a system that we would choose for our people? Why would we not say we should only license trustable physicians? You know, I, I think that to me, that that would be how I would, I would, I would like to ask that to Dr. Bear. I mean, why would that not be a responsibility of the licensing authority? You know, why would we want physicians that you can't trust? That's a very good question, actually. I mean, you're right, because technically you can be licensed to practice medicine in a particular state, but not ABIM certified. They're not actually seeing eye to eye. So so why is this not part of the license? The other thing you mentioned is, well, there's no evidence that, you know, uh, the recertification health patient care. This is a very tough to show, though. Would you agree? I mean, it's not really like if me and you say, let's design a study and I challenged Rich Barron, Dr. Barron, about this. But in all fairness, it's not always easy to do a study like this. Like, am I going to randomize folks to take questions versus those who right. don't take questions? And then I'm going to see patient outcomes. Like, you know, the more I think about it, 
not everything we can answer, Brian, with a randomized control study. No, I, I agree with that. Yeah, that's one of the challenges. And I guess, you know, I mean, I don't know um, if, if I want to tip my hand, you know, this early in our discussion, but I mean, that's that's one reason sort of among many that I feel that um, the best strategy is really to sort of mitigate the the harms of MOC. I think that overturning it, getting rid of it is a, is a hard thing to do for many reasons. And I think the better plan or the more realistic plan is simply to have a more uh, a less harmful, more helpful system. Do you think the public cares about burnout? I mean, we talk about burnout. Um, I really, I you know, I think we can discuss how we define it. But you know, you know when you, you know when you're burnt out, and uh, I think we we it's it's a very hard job. Does the public care that the burnout argument? I think the public certainly cares about burnout, but probably not burnout per se. You know, I mean, they certainly care about the consequences of physician burnout, you know, because of the negative impact that that has on, you know, getting an appointment with your doctor, uh, having the things that you want accomplished at that visit or occurring, you know, to improve your health or, you know, I, I think people certainly care about that. But I think you're right. Um you know, I, I think doctors, if you're around just doctors, it's easy to um, to think that our problems are unique and, you know, we have we we we're suffering uniquely from burnout. And, and maybe in some ways we are. But I think people are burning out lots of places. You know, I think wage workers and, um, you know, people with regular jobs, they got hard jobs. They're burning out, you know. And um, and so I don't think it's a unique problem among physicians, maybe some of the things that go into it are, but I, I guess I'm not sure that it's um, reasonable to expect the public to care about that problem for doctors per se. The consequences of that problem, yeah. Yeah. So you posted a video and in the video you proposed solutions. What I liked about your video was actually calm. You were actually, it's very easy to understand what you're talking about, even if you're not really a physician. I also like the fact you gave grades to each of your own proposed solutions. So what I want to do is I want to go through each one and discuss each one with you and the grade and see if any of this is uh, practical. And then maybe we'll come up with maybe some path forward. So solution number one, what was it? Uh, let me look and see. What was, was that? Uh, I think that was get involved with the board. I That's think it was there. get involved with the board. I wasn't too happy with that one. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but I did give you a chance. I kept listening after that one. Yeah, good. Well, I, 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 uh, I, I bring up that one because, you know, I mean, a few years ago, one of the things that I was um, a big critic of was, was certain policies of the United States Medical Licensing Exam, USMLE. And, um, and I, I tried very hard to get people to think about that, some of that stuff in a different way. And, um, and I would always get these people direct messaging me or, you know, reaching out to me privately and saying, you know, you really, you, you got to get involved with us. You know, you got to come and write some questions and, you know, do all this stuff. And I just, I was, I was very, very skeptical that that would do a whit of good for anybody. In fact, I felt like it was a way probably just to shut me up. And I feel that in, in reality, anybody who has strong feelings on this issue, uh, 
I mean, you can go and and devote some free labor to the board of your choice if you want and write some questions and go to some meetings and meet some nice people. I'm sure that's true. Um, are you going to make real change? No, I don't. And I think you're actually sort of voluntarily choosing to put a muzzle on yourself because you won't feel right about, you know, saying things that are negative about the organization for which you volunteer your services and the f- new friends that you've made. And um so I, I'm very skeptical that that's going to do much good for anybody other than the boards. I mean, if you put yourself in the physician shoes, I mean, you kind of feel, you know, it's an honor. You are you are going to write questions that determines, right. I'm going to write questions that going to tell me if you're good or not. That gives me that, you know, halo effect, right? I mean, right. <clears throat> this is great. I can put a line item on my CV. It's a good thing. So I can understand the sense of glory that you may get by doing that. Right. Right. And of course, that's, you know, for for any listeners who are unaware, uh, it is important to note that the the questions that are written for these board exams, they're not written by some uh, question writing pro that's on salary by the board. They're all questions that are um, originally generated by faculty members or physicians in those subject areas for free, for nothing more than a pat on the head and a line. Basically by our colleagues. Yes, correct. So Brian, let's say everyone decides not to write questions. Problem solved? (laughs) Well, probably not. I mean, in the first (laughs) place, that's unrealistic to think that, you know, I mean, you could get 100% of physicians to do anything. I mean, uh, the corollary of that is the people that say, oh, let's just all quit doing AB, you know, MOC at the same time. It's like, it's unrealistic. I mean, you can't get, uh, you know, 100% of physicians to do to do anything, you know, period. But I mean, secondly, if they had to if they had to pay somebody for to write questions, I'm sure they can or they can train a, you know, chat GPT to, you know, spit out some questions for them. You know, I think it it benefits them uh, in terms of the questions themselves to say, you know, when you get some crummy question, well, you know, this was made by your colleagues. This was, you know, this this trashy question was created by, you know, the experts in the field. So, yeah. But it's it's interesting. I think the public needs to know that these questions are written by our colleagues, and it's for free. And I think there's an opportunity there. But you gave that about a D, I believe. That's great. I think that's what you gave. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. D or something. Okay, let's go to solution number two, or at least proposal number two. Or you know, again, what did you think? So uh, you know, for that, I think I highlighted that uh, you know. Another thing we can do is kick up dust on social media. You know, you can talk about it on Twitter or X or, um, you know, on your YouTube or Reddit or any other number of places. And that's good. I mean, it's a it's a good thing to do. That's the way that people find out about a lot of stuff these days. I mean, obviously, that's the reason that, you know, you and I are having this conversation now. And if you're not talking about this stuff, well, you're sort of depending on every individual physician who's frustrated when they have to do this MOC stuff, you're depending on them to do all their own original research that, you know, Dr. West has done over the past 15 or 20 years and figure out, you know, de novo, all the things that are already known, you know, that are problematic about this, you know, and that's obviously inefficient. I mean, there, there has to be some momentum, um, you know, that spreads information and highlights the, the, the issue. And that's good. So social media is good, but I think where it fails is, I sometimes get the feeling when I see some of these conversations on social media that people think that's going to be sufficient. And it it just simply will not. I mean, as you highlighted, I mean, ABIM is a uh, 
it's a it's a large organization whose executives are handsomely compensated. There's no amount of of retweets that's going to make them just sigh and uh, you know turn out the lights in their Philadelphia headquarters and you know flip the sign to close and just walk out. You know they got us guys. You know they hit this many. That's just not going to happen. Um, so you've got to realize that if you want something more than just social media anger to occur, you have to translate the energy and the activism that's occurring online into some other real avenue that's going to target some of the structural issues that support um, you know, this, this process. So you are pro-social media, but what you're saying is by itself is not enough. Exactly. Yeah. By itself. I mean, you know, that that petition, I mean, um, the last I looked at it, it had what, like 12 or 14,000. It's got well, more than we're that. close to 18,000. Yeah. Right. And that's wonderful. But I mean, you know, what's going to happen if it had 19, 20, 25, 50? I mean, there's no number at which something automatically happens, you know. But I mean, and, and that's the question, you know, one of the questions I asked on my podcast with Rich Baron, Aaron Goodman, <clears throat> it was. A confrontational question, I'm not going to lie. I did ask this, Dr. Barron. I said, Dr. Barron, you are the CEO and president of an organization called the ABIM. You have a petition from over 10,000 of your shareholders. These are technically your shareholders because these are the people that essentially are paying the fees that eventually lead to your salary. So these are your shareholders. Over 10,000 of your shareholders at the time have signed that you are not doing a good job. In any organization, you would be called by the board of directors into the boardroom to have a conversation. So, you know, there is power in number. There is. The hard thing is, though, that um, I think you have to recognize that these boards, they have a, a, an unusual business model. I mean, they, they, they take money from physicians but in a way, the customer of their product, the customer for certification is not the person who's giving them money. The customer for certification is the hospital, the insurance plan. Those are the people who, you know, who, who want this information. And so, you know, you're right. If a normal company had their customers or their shareholders saying we're dissatisfied, well, that's an existential threat to the company. You know, if, if all of Apple's customers say, you know, the new iPhone sucks and we don't like it. They're going to listen because that's, you know, they're giving you the product and they're taking the money from you. But that's not exactly the case with ABIM. I mean, they are, in a sense, giving you the product, but that, that's not really the market for that product. Do you think this, uh, the you know, the number of signatures might let healthcare institutions and hospitals pay attention? I mean, essentially, you're right, right? I mean, the hospitals, I mean, the ABIM has convinced hospitals that we are able to tell you the good doctors from bad doctors for you to employ and keep on your staff and give them credentials to admit patients to your hospital. We are the arbitrator between the good and the bad doctors based on this program and recertification. If we have 20, 30, 50,000 signatures, would that lead hospitals to say, you know what, let's just pause a little bit and try to understand maybe there's something there. I, I don't think so. I don't think, and I'll tell you why. I mean, I don't think hospital executives, they don't care about petitions or anything like that. They care about their bottom line. They care about the 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 actual economic impacts of, of you know, having MOC or not. And so they care about their reimbursement from payers. 
you know, they care about their, uh, you know, their credentialing and the, um, you know, the appearance of quality that they can give to the public. And they care about those things to the extent that they impact the revenue of the organization. And so I don't think that um, unless you, unless you address those other supports or issues, they will continue to make the same decisions that they have to date. Would payers pay attention to a petition like this? I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, this may, do you, do you want to talk about that aspect of this thing now or wait till the end? I kind of put that at the end of the video, but I, I don't mind talking All about right. that. No, let's leave it till the end. Let's go All on right. to solution number three. All right. What do we have for three? So solution three was to go grassroots sort of to, we sort of touched on this a little bit before. I mean, the, the questions come from volunteers. In theory, like you said, we could just stop writing them. Or you could tell your colleagues, like, I mean, you really want to be doing that. I mean, do you, do you really want to support this program, you know, or or potentially if you were in a position to, um, you know, like I said, faculty do this for academic capital. If you're on the promotion and tenure committee, I mean, it certainly is within your discretion to sort of not value that so highly if you wanted. Um, and in theory, that would take away, you know, one of the things that the boards, I mean, it would, it would take away the product that they then, you know, the volunteer service that they then monetize into these other things. But in reality, I mean, that's unrealistic. I mean, um, there's there's enough physicians that I think are um, true believers in the ABM, I, I, ABIM's mission, even though they've declined your invitation to get canceled on social media. <laughs> there's a handful, I think, of true believers. Um, and then there's aspirants to the, you know, ABIM throne and fortune and people who want to, you know, they see the people at the top and they want to be them. Or there's just people that, um, you know, like I say, they're eager for a pat on the head and a line on their CV and they'll continue to do it. And so you could probably convince some people, but I think this is, you know, probably altogether unrealistic. Yeah, so the grassroots and not doing this, you did not give this a high mark because it's right. just not possible. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Number four. Number four is to support a competitor. And um, so, you know, Dr. Fisher talked about this, you know, the the, the formation of the National Board of um, Physicians and Surgeons. So you can maintain your certification through the American Board of Pediatrics or American Board of Internal Medicine or whatever your specialty board is. Or you can get a, a recertification is what they call it through the NBPAS. And what they do is um, they um, verify your initial credentials. So you can't get the NBAP, NBPAS certificate unless you have originally gotten, um, you know, a, a certificate from one of the ABMS member boards. But then they'll, um, they'll recredential you as long as you're meeting your CME and so if you're doing your continuing medical education and you, you're submitting those credits, then they will uh, they will vouch that you are you know recertified and um, and you get their seal of approval. The problem is that not many hospitals accept their vouching. Um, I looked in my own state; there were two hospitals in the state of Virginia that um, accept NBPAS. And reading between the lines a little bit, there are hospitals that are in rural areas that are, I, I, I think it's probably very challenging for them to fill staff vacancies. And I think it's it, it probably is a benefit to those hospitals. Getting back to the point I made before, it has to be, this has to be worth the hospital's while. Um, I think nationwide, there's, if you take all the hospitals, it's probably about 1% of hospitals accept this, you know, recertif recertification from NBPAS. So, um, you could do it 
if you do it now, you're sort of going to have to pay NBPAS and your specialty board if you want to continue gainfully practicing medicine at a hospital, you know, because your hospital is not likely to accept it. So in the short term, I think this is a solution that doesn't have, um, because there's just not much uptake, it would take a, a lot of physicians doing this. I think the other issue is that many people, many of the people who are the most vocal in this debate, they don't want an alternative system. They want to get rid of MOC. They want it gone altogether. And even though I don't think that's an easy thing to do, I think that's actually pretty unrealistic. You know, they don't want a different boss that's just going to charge them a lower price for a more, um, you know, acceptable product. Yeah. And the, and the, um, the alternative program you refer to, uh, Brian, I don't think you can get that at ACGME accredited hospitals because the ACGME uh, mandates ABIM to be able to have residency and fellowship programs. I believe that the hospitals accept that, like you said, could be rural hospitals, yeah. likely don't have residency and fellowship programs. Yeah, that was one of the most interesting things that I actually did not know. I sort of felt ashamed that I did not know that when I heard. I didn't know either it. until I spoke with Wes. Um, I will say I have not been able to verify that myself. Now, I haven't spent an inordinate amount of time on it, but I did um, I did review the ACGME core program requirements and the specialty program requirements for pediatrics. I could not find that in there. There is a requirement that the program director has to have um, current certification through their, you know, whatever, whatever specialty they're the program director for, there is a requirement for that. Um, and it has to be from an ABMS, ABMS or AOA board. Um, yeah. But I actually could not find written that. Yeah, we probably should look at that. Maybe things are changing, but I think I'm sure like we can find this on the website of the alternative thing. Okay, so these are four solutions so far, none of them too attractive. I do like the social media continuation, although I realize by itself is not really enough. <laughs> Yeah. What else do you have? What other solutions do we have next? Option five is to um, to look closely at the at the board's finances, and that that all stems from the experience that Dr. Fisher was describing in his episode about um, you know several years ago with the ABIM. There was a forensic accountant named Charles Kroll who looked into the finances, and you know as you heard, a lot of it looked pretty fishy. You know about the way that they were handling deferred revenue to sort of seemingly conceal a cash crunch and coming up with new products in order to um, to help their finances. My thought is that this is probably not likely to be an effective strategy at this point, in, in part because, you know, the boards have been burned once by this before. I mean, um, you know, with everything that happened in, you know, 2016, 2017, you know, whatever, 2015, whatever that was. Um, so you would you would hope that they cleaned up their accounting practices a little bit. At the same time, this is sort of like the social media stuff where I think it should be done. I mean, I think the finances should be scrutinized and I feel strongly about that. And, 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 you know, one of the funny things about that is that, uh, you know, from time to time, like I said, I, I've, I've harped on other organizations, finances and the, the greed and waste in particular, you know, several years ago, I, I mean, among other things, I wrote a paper about financial conflict of interest at the national board of medical examiners. And a lot of people, um, especially people who were sort of adjacent to the board, you know, uh, were, I, I don't know, tried to, uh, I'm not sure, try to like dad me on it and, and, mm -hmm. and say, you know, oh, you know, you're making yourself look bad. You shouldn't talk about money. You know, why are you always talking about their money? And, um, and it really gets my goat because, um, and so I'm going to, I'm going to take a moment to sort of get on a platform and say this, 
you know, these organizations, these nonprofit organizations, when we say nonprofit, what we mean is that they're tax exempt. They are mm -hmm. not paying income tax. Okay. And so all the roads or bridges or social service programs or whatever that could have been made with their income, society is foregoing that. And we're foregoing those tax dollars in exchange. You know, the bargain is that they're doing something that's a social good. And, and in return, to make sure that that bargain is, is being upheld, they have to submit certain financial information on their Form 990 tax return. Those things are public, and they are made public for a reason. And that reason is so that the general public can inspect them and ensure that the organization's dollars are, are meeting the mission, that they're fulfilling that social contract. And, and so, I, again, I think this should be done, but I think that the boards are wisened up enough now that they're going to avoid some of the missteps that they've made in the past. Well, I mean, they still have to disclose, like the Form 990 doesn't, I mean, you know, if they're non-for-profit, it's really important. But I really love the fact that you highlighted the not-for-profit is basically a tax-exempt code. It does right. not mean, does not mean you're not really making a profit. Clearly, you are making a profit. Right. Exactly. And and unfortunately, the profit that you're making becomes a, a, a weight around your neck in a certain way. And this is what the natural history of these organizations is, is that, you know, um, an, a, a for-profit company that takes in more money than they need, well, they can distribute that money to their shareholders as a dividend and everybody will be happy, you know. Mm -hmm. But a nonprofit company has to reinvest that in its mission. So what happens is that you have a nonprofit company, they they take in their revenue that they feel they need to take in, and just through sort of good general business sense, you know, they don't want to cut their margin too close. You know, you don't want to have a budget of 50 million and, uh, you know, then have 60 million in expenses. So, you know, if you think you're going to have 50 million in expenses, well, why don't we set our prices so that we take in 55 million or 60 million? But now when you have that money, it sort of creates a problem because you've got to reinvest it in yourself. So what you do is you make new programs, you hire new people, you do new stuff. And you know, the organization grows bigger just to feed itself more. Yeah. And that's the natural history of these nonprofits. That's amazing. I, I bet you there are a lot of folks who are listening to this who probably did not really know exactly this particular nuance, which is really important. Next solutions, because we're going to solve this today, right? I and mean, we're going to solve the problem. <laughs> well, you're going to get my opinion on it. That's that's I'm all I'm you. You're on. You're in the hook to solve this. <laughs> I titled the episode "Solutions." So, um, so option six is to call your state legislator, and um, if you if you truly want to end MOC, I think there's really only two ways that can occur, and the, the, this would be one of them: is that you would have to make it illegal. You would have to convince your state legislators to, to pass a law saying, you know, let it be known that from now on, physicians and hospitals and so on are, are not allowed to require MOC for the things that they're requiring for. And laws get made all the time and stuff like that happens. So... You heard about um, the Florida Florida Medical Association resolution. Well, actually, you know, I mean, several years ago, after the Charles Kroll... Um, revealing of the ABM and finances and all the uproar after that, there was a wave of, of interest in this strategy. And so, you know, um, Dr. Fisher mentioned it. I mean, in many states, you know, Tennessee, Oklahoma, um, Florida tried to put one through. I can't remember, Kentucky, Michigan. Um, medical associations tried to put forward legislation that would do this. 
But what happened was that the hospital associations um, and the insurance organizations lobbied against it and um, and either neutered the legislation or kept it corralled in committee. So several states did pass versions of the law, but essentially they were limited to saying things like, you can't require MOC for licensure, which nobody does. So it's sort of a law that, that, that makes no practical difference. Yeah. So if you wanna pursue this strategy, I think it's it's going to be a real uphill battle because unfortunately the the hospital associations the insurers they're deep pocketed they're well tied in to the state capital you know they have many people who look out for their interest they employ lots of constituents you know on the other hand you know other than sort of a sense of justice it's hard to get politicians to see what's in this for them you know doctors are not that big of a you know, a voting block or a lobby. I mean, there is some money that, you know, gets given to certain candidates, but I mean, compared to the amount that's thrown around by the the opposite side in this is, you know, minimal. We're up to number seven. All right. Op- option seven would be the other option that I think you have if you want to end MOC, and that is to hire an attorney. Because if you can't pass a new law, and it's been difficult to do that, you still have all the old existing laws that could be um, brought to bear on something that that honestly feels like it should be illegal. I mean, it does not feel like it should be um, allowable to have this MOC system. It, it smacks of a protection racket. I mean, it seems like the you know the mafia guys on the street of New York that are like uh, you know going to the fruit vendor and saying you know uh, you know you need to buy protection so nobody knocks over your fruit cart. And they're like, well, who's going to knock over my fruit cart? But, what, what, but, what's, but what's the attorney suing for? Like, you know, what's the damage in order to sue? Yeah. Right? What's the damage? Exactly. So, so the 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 theory that has that that continues to be tested, but has been tested against the ABIM specifically, is that this is an antitrust violation. So that that it is, uh, you know, an impermissible monopoly on this maintenance of certification that the ABIM holds and that they use that monopoly power to charge whatever fees that they want. And we have to buy it without much say in the matter. And so the, um, you know, the theory of the case before was that, um, you know, physicians sign up to take the initial certifying exam and that that was a separate product, that that's a deal that you make with the company, but then it's tied to you continuing to purchase this other stuff. And that generally wouldn't be allowed. Unfortunately, the the court did not buy that argument. They said that that's not true, that these are not two products, they're the same product. The product is certification. And you can do it with a test or you can do it with these multiple choice questions, but it's one thing that the ABIM is selling and that thing is just time limited. So, so the courts did not buy the antitrust piece. Exactly. Right. They have not so far. So there is still a suit pending uh, for the American Board of Neurology. And I mean, Dr. Fisher seemed optimistic about it. I am less optimistic. And I think that I have two additional reservations, even if this started to get momentum. Number one would be now, I mean, to his point, you know, I, I had an interaction with him on, on Twitter where, um, you know, he said, it, you know, if the, if, the, if the case goes to trial and a judge orders discovery, oh, that's you know, that alone would 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 disrupt and bankrupt their operations. And I think that's true. But it'll leave. I mean, if, if the ABIM disappeared, it would leave a void that would be filled by some other similar entity, I think. Or by nobody. 
Maybe, but I think I, I I think it would be filled by somebody. And if it was filled by somebody, even a court decision that says that this form of MOC is illegal, the court would have to articulate sort of the standard by which it could be made legal. And but so I'm not sure it would be a durable solution. The second thing to think about is I do have some content expertise in the um, you know the the history of the national residency matching programs antitrust lawsuit. So you may be familiar with that, but the very brief overview is that um, back in the early 2000s, there was um, a high profile antitrust lawsuit against the National Residency Matching Program and the Association of American Medical Colleges and the ACGME saying that, um, you know, this monopoly on residency training um, served as a, as a way to keep residents' salaries low because residents can't choose what hospital they go to or negotiate their salary. And um, so there was a class action lawsuit that actually um, won some initial court victim, victories. They were going to go to trial. And you know what happened then? Congress stepped in and passed legislation saying that the NRMP is specifically excluded from antitrust. Oh, gosh. So, yeah, uh, you can, I'll send you the link to it. I've got a, oh, a gosh. That. But, you know, because again, you've got to remember that hospitals have deep pockets. They employ a lot of people. They carry a lot of weight in their district. They have a lot of politicians that if, if the hospital executive gets on the phone and says, I'm concerned about this. All of a sudden, the politician is, is concerned about it. So there's no way to immunize yourself against some kind of last second legislative Hail, Hail Mary like that. Other solutions? I mean, did we leave anything? Like, is there any solution left? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I feel like the real way forward is, um, as I said, and this, this, you know, this is a, this is a hard thing to talk about without making it seem like you're in favor of MOC. But I think that you've got to acknowledge that there is a certain logic to MOC if you accept that we should have initial certification. I think if you if you ask someone, hey, you know, why don't why aren't you complaining about initial certification? And they and they say whatever they say, it's hard then to logically pass a thread through the needle that you've just made between a justification that suits initial certification but doesn't suit MOC. I think that's logically hard to do. I think I think sometimes you view that initial certification almost like your capstone project, like you know you're, you know it's a final exam that you actually pass through where you do. I mean, I I really don't think you would have any pushback against the initial certification. The reason you have the pushback against the recertification is because usually you're now practicing, you are seeing patients, you are dealing with your peers, you're dealing with patients, with families, you're going through the credentialing committee of the hospital if there are issues, you're licensed in one or two states, yeah. you're doing the CMEs. So that's really why people say, like, well, why am I doing this again? But before that, the initial certification, you're still not practicing, you don't have patient volume, you are not really uh, doing the CME like you're supposed to do because your residency and fellowship are considered your CME. So that's really why you get the push. And the other thing that I, I I forgot to ask in my prior podcast is, why is that 10-year grace period, technically? Like, you know, you get the initial certification, you don't have to do anything for the first 10 years. Yeah. It's after you finish the first 10 years, you have to do the recertification or longitudinal knowledge assessment, and you start paying the maintenance of certification. So your first 10 years, you're actually technically okay, I believe, unless this yeah. has changed. 
So who's to tell me it shouldn't be nine years or seven years or 11 years? Like this is seems to be, frankly, if you're really caring about advances in science and medicine and patient care, a full decade of no recertification seems too long if you want to use that argument. Right. Well, to your first point, I agree. Maintenance of certification feels different. But I think if you sort of rigorously test that and you ask somebody, well, why do you think initial certification should be justified? I mean, I think you'll get some, I mean, if you push someone, I think you're likely to get something about, well, you know, we have to make sure people have a certain standard or whatever. But then once you've, once those words have left your mouth, you're sort of on the hook for agreeing to MOC because unfortunately skills fade over time. I mean, like I said in my video, I mean, 20 years ago, I was in college taking organic chemistry uh, and I was doing pretty well, but brother, you know, give me an organic chemistry problem right now. I couldn't do it, you know, to save my family's life. You know, I, for, I, I, I don't know it anymore. And, and I think, unfortunately, we all have had the experience. But you're not uh, supposed to know it, Brian. You don't well, need to know it. If I give you a nephrology well, problem, you're going to know it. Maybe. But I think we all, unfortunately, have had the problem of dealing with people who don't remain current. And... I mean, I'll give you I'll give you a quick example that came to mind when I was listening to something um, uh, on your show um, that, that, that Dr. Barron said. Um, I remember when I was in residency, I was a resident. I was the senior resident. I admitted a patient to the service. The patient, suffice to say, they had an indication for treating them with the antibiotic Zosin. Following morning, I signed out the patient to the attending. Um, and he tells me the plan and the plan was to switch him to cephalosporin. I said, well, curious, given this and that and the other thing, why we would want to switch him to cephalosporin. The answer was because they didn't have Zosin when I trained. And, you know, I mean, unfortunately, I mean, you probably know there are some I I, I don't disagree. Look, I don't disagree. I guess where I'm arguing is there are good doctors and bad doctors. There are good lawyers and bad lawyers. I don't see the lawyers taking the bar exam again and again. There are good financial planners and bad financial planners. They're not taking the CFP or CFA exam again and again. I think the argument is we all know there are good and bad doctors, but the dispute is this mechanism is not really the way to differentiate that the mechanism is frankly if you are referring your patient to me and you're seeing me really not doing good care at some point you're going to pick up the phone and either talk to my boss or somebody i mean we do we deal with this all the time A, a random test that happens at a random interval that gives me that stamp of approval that i am that knowledgeable seems to be so arbitrary and so non-convincing. I mean, so just because yeah. I'm in the MOC right now today, I'm very competent. No, I, I agree completely. So I, I think that the, the the standard should not be, oh, this is a good doctor. I think the standard should be, we should only have competent doctors. Exactly. I think that that should be the standard. Exactly. Right. And to me, that is a responsibility, not of the board, but of the state licensing authority. Yep. Yeah, no, we agree. So in the last few minutes, I want to try to have a path forward. Like, look, I mean, we've talked about your practical solutions. You gave them grades. Um, Some of them are easily done, such as, you know, um, social media, all of this. I want to ask you one question and then see if there's any path forward. How about engaging our societies? 
like in oncology, you've got the American Society of Clinical Oncology or Hematology. You've got the, I'm sure yeah. there's American College of Pediatrics. There's Nephrology. I mean, all of these medical societies where we pay tuitions, we pay fees for them, are they able to put pressure? I mean, they represent the physicians technically. Are we able to put pressure on them? That pressure could go into the ABIM, for example. I sort of feel similarly to the, what I said about the social media. I mean, it, it is helpful only to the extent that it sort of keeps momentum, spreads the word, but it still has to lead to some structural change. And, you know, I went through this in my video, but I mean, I think one thing that's very important to do with this or with any other advocacy effort is to, to do a power analysis, to understand how the ABIM has acquired power and what continues to give it power. And, um, you know, I, in my video, I gave the example of, uh, you know, if you were a, a high school student and you don't like your school's dress code, I mean, you can yell at the teacher who's writing you up for the infraction of the code, but the teacher doesn't have the, ch the power to do something different. You know, the power is, is at least one step removed from that. You got to go to the principal. But maybe the principal is not even where this came from. Maybe the policy came from the school board and you got to figure out some way to influence them. You know, or or maybe it's you get the idea that I'm saying. So for the ABIM, you got to think through what would happen if you didn't do your MOC. Well, you would not be listed as being currently certified, and you might lose your hospital privileges. So hospitals have to be leveraged, but hospitals unfortunately are being leveraged by another entity, and that is payers. You know, insurance plans um, have to undergo their own credentialing, um, you know, their own accreditation. So insurance plans, and they often do that through the NCQA, which um, likes to see the ABMS certification. And so you got to go one step back. Even then, you'd have to influence that board in order to free the hands of the payers, in order to free the hands of the hospital, in order for you to be able to do what you wanted to do. So I think that there has to be more targeted advocacy toward those organizations. And I've got to say, and, and so you, you know, when you get to the, the, the sort of the root of the power, you got to ask, well, what are their incentives? You know, what, what, how do they have power? And I think that you're going to have a tough sell saying, we want to get rid of MOC and we don't want, we don't want nothing in the place of it. I think that's a tough sell. And at the same time, I think that there are types of recertification that physicians accept and accept willingly. And I mean, I think one good example maybe is, uh, you know, your ACLS or PAL certification. I mean, that's only good for two years. Um, you know, nobody says, oh, well, you ran a code in residency and you passed this exam once, well, you're good for 20 years. Stuff changes. You I, I, think, I think the difference is that you don't need to do the ACLS unless exactly. you want to practice ACLS. Exactly. So you have, there's a couple of differences. One is exactly as you said, you're not forced to do it. Some hospitals might require it, but I think that people would view that as being a just request by the hospital. You know, you want to work in the cardiac care unit? Well, you got to be ACLS certified. You know, that makes sense, you know, but, and I think the other thing is that it's not, I mean, I think that's one key difference, but I think there's some others there too. The, another is that it's not that expensive. Although honestly, it's not that far off from MOC. It's like a hundred and some dollars for two years. Um, but I think that physicians, it's not that burdensome. And I think that they do see the logic and the value add. I mean, overall. You think investigative journalism or journal articles, or I mean, I mean, if somebody, I mean, you know, look, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, 
presidents resign sometimes because of an editorial written and discovers a scandal. I mean, these things do happen. <laughs> I I think it's a tough sell without something. I mean, I think we had our run at that with the ABIM's, um, you know, uh, finances in, you know, 2015-2016. I think um, the problem is that the logic of saying, oh, we do this because we want the public to have good doctors. You know, that's simple. It's understandable. It resonates with the public. To, to argue against it, you have to sort of make a deeper explanation. And like whoever it was at Carville or somebody said, you know, if you're explaining, you're losing. You know, it's a, it's a more complicated argument to make. Oh, boy, Brian, this was really enjoyable. Uh, a little on the depressing side, because I'm not really sure we have <laughs> solutions. Uh, nonetheless, it was good discussion. Uh, my, my last question to you is, uh, if we're having this conversation, me and you, in two years from now, I'm going to give it two years from now, about the ABIM and the MOC, do you think we'll be talking about exactly the same? Do you think we're going to have some progress? I think there will be some progress. I think it'll be hard to see. I mean, in reality, what I think is going to happen is that the um, the social media furor is going to slowly die down. But at the same time, I think that the ABIM will be a little bit singed from the from the flames, and they're going to be a little bit careful about raising prices or adding some new burden for a period of time. I mean, I think that is that that will happen, and I think that they will continue to work to do sort of what I'm suggesting, which is to make ABIM's MOC or ABP's MOC more relevant, more palatable, uh, less likely to draw the ire of physicians. They're not gonna abandon it altogether, but I think the the there, there will be some things that either some little changes that occur or potentially some adverse changes that don't occur that, you know, in two years from now because of this little firestorm. Dr. Brian Carmody, the sheriff of sodium. I'm going to link to his uh, blog, website, as well as to the uh, YouTube video in the podcast so you can all see it. Uh, this was really wonderful. Uh, Dr. Brian Carmody, thank you for coming on the Healthcare Unfiltered, uh, talking about ABIM and the MOC, the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> no, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening to Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Brian Carmody, for this interesting discussion and dialogue about potential solutions. I would be very interested in learning from you your thoughts, your opinions about what we discussed, and what is really the path forward? What can we do? The petition has over 20,000 signatures. But frankly, we are where we are right now. And, uh, you know, until we actually see significant push against this from everybody, from all societies, uh, probably we're going to stay where we are. But let's try to maintain optimism. Don't forget to let me know what you think. And don't forget to rate the podcast, write a brief review, tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. For that, I am eternally grateful. Check out all of the episodes on my website, chadinabhan.com, on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with something that Winston Churchill once said. If you're going through hell, keep going. Until next time, take care.